Hey guys, what is happening? Welcome back to the show. This is Creating Space, and I'm your host, Wes Knight, former professional soccer player, now turned mindset coach and motivational speaker. I'm really excited to announce that I'm headed out to Sweden. For those of you who have been listening to the show, I'm going to Malmo. I'm going to visit episode number 10's guest, Ella Masser, for my 30th birthday. She's ripping it up in the Swedish league, and I'm going to check her and her wife, Erin McLeod, who's also a bit of a baller, very well known as probably the best Canadian women's goalkeeper to ever walk the planet. I'm going to go check these two ladies out. They're huge individuals in my life. I'm going to go support Ella as she continues to bang goals in, and Erin's going through a bit of a, uh, a knee injury herself, and I'm coming to Sweden to give her some support, and I want to be able to mic her up for the podcast and get an episode in with her as well. It's an exciting time. 30 years young. I'm so excited. It's the next phase of my life. But what I'm even more excited about is this episode number 13 that I'll be bringing to you guys. This week, we've got Josh Medcalf. Joshua is based out of California. This guy was a collegiate athlete for Duke and Vanderbilt and the men's soccer side. And now he's transitioned into a performance coach for all types of individuals, specifically for professional and collegiate athletes. He's a director of mental training for Oregon's women's golf, the director of mental training for UCLA women's basketball. And he's also a published author, multiple books, three to be exact, and the president of Train to Be Clutch. I cannot wait to bring to you guys Live from Sweden, episode number 13 with Joshua Metcalf. Guys, what is happening? Welcome to Creating Space. I'm your host, Wes Knight. I'm sitting here with a beast. This is Joshua Metcalf. Josh played soccer at Vanderbilt and at Duke. He's the founder of Train to Be Clutch, which is a boutique consulting firm that focuses on leadership, life skills, and mental training. He created the first mental training app in the world for basketball, soccer, and golf. He's written four best-selling books. He's got clients in the MLB, NFL, PGA, LPGA, WNBA, MLS, and NBA. And if that's not enough, he served as the director of mental training for the UCLA women's basketball program. And he's the second person ever to be invited to work with the greatest dynasty in college sports of mental training with UNC, North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and their women's soccer program. Man, I'm almost losing breath. What has happened, man? Welcome to Creating Space. Thank you, Wes. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. I'm grateful that you had me on and uh, really excited to chop it up with you and see if we can add some value to your listeners' lives. Well, listen to this, man. I'm all about content. I'm all about value. I try to bring that on a daily basis. You've got ton of it in your history. This is your resume. These are things that you have already done, right? Who is Josh Metcalf without all of that? Well, you know, I'm a kid that really loves adrenaline, that loves to, uh, you know, chase waterfalls, jump off of waterfalls, snowboard. And so I love those aspects of life. I've always kind of been the kid that gets underestimated. And so I've, I've just loved sports my whole life. I've loved, you know, going out and competing. And I really feel like I come alive in those moments. And so, you know, that's, that's what I had done, you know, most of my life growing up was playing sports. And 
you know, my family was really, really poor. I can vividly remember dreaming about happy meals. And so, you know, for a lot of kids that grow up poor, you know, sports are the, the one avenue that they have to, to really live life to the fullest and, and go out and compete. And so that's what I did. And yeah, I mean, I, I love the opportunities that I get today. I, I really try and focus on just, you know, loving people, serving people, adding value anywhere that I can. I'm actually introverted which shocks a lot of people because I get on stage and speak to thousands of people a lot. I love to just go out and experience those things and getting on stage is actually, you know, it's, it's gotten to the point, I used to be scared to death of it, but it's gotten to the point where it, it's probably, it gives me just as much of that adrenaline rush as going off a snowboarding jump that I'm no way qualified to be going off of or jumping off a waterfall. And so, yeah. I love that. I had a recent guest on the show. His name was Shay Emery. And he had this great quote. He said, fear is an untapped energy source. And I feel that way whenever I'm just about to go into a podcast or going to speak in front of individuals. I get this giddy pre-performance <laughs> when I was playing soccer feeling where yep. I have just reframed it. Josh, I just tell myself, man, that's just an energy source that I got to tap into because that's my greatness. Is that what you tap into every day? Because, man, you've got a list of great accolades. How have you done that? Well, you know, I think that... Truthfully, it's, it comes back to Mother Teresa's quote of, you know, be faithful in the small things for it's in them where your strength lies. And, you know, I, I think that we live in a culture today that gets obsessed with all the big stuff. Yeah, I had the experiences at Vanderbilt and Duke and, and all of that, but really professionally where, you know, the, the biggest thing came from was, you know, I'd ask myself what I would do if money didn't matter. And so I skipped scholarships to law school and I moved across the country to downtown Los Angeles to live and serve at the homeless shelter, the dream center. And I was there for six months serving. And then I moved into the closet of a gym, a, a literal closet. And I'm operating out of the closet of a gym to start my organization. And I was only working with three kids at the time, just three little kids. None of them were going to go on to be professional athletes, most likely. And that's who I had in my hand. And, and I remember getting so frustrated and I actually yelled out at God one day and I call it the day that everything changed for me because I just yelled out and I was like, why do I only have three athletes? Like I could help the, the best in the world. I could help Tiger Woods. I could help LeBron James. I could help, you know, Kobe Bryant. Like, why do I only have these three little kids? And I just felt so strongly God punched me in the chest with until you value those three little kids the same way that you would Tiger Woods, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, you name it, you will never work with somebody that's at that level. And it, it radically shifted everything in my life. I stopped trying to, you know, build a world changing organization. And I just tried to really focus on being incredibly faithful with the small stuff that's in my hand. So I, I honestly think that that's the biggest thing, you know, that I was listening to something I had recorded. I don't even know what it was, but sometimes my phone in the car, it'll just pop on random stuff from my phone. And, uh, <laughs> and, this, and this MP3 is not even labeled. It's like 0258965. And it's, it's me talking somewhere. And I talked about how people that get average results in life, they tend to persist until something becomes painful. And as soon as it becomes painful, as soon as it costs them something, they quit. People that get, um, you know, we'll call them kind of upper class results or pretty good, really good results. Those people, I think, they tend to hang on until stuff gets, you know, seriously uncomfortable. 
and they, they're willing to push through some pain. They're willing to push through some discomfort. But you know, when stuff gets really, really painful, when it gets really, really uncomfortable, whenever things are really, really challenging and it costs them a lot, that's when they quit. And then there's this, there's this select group of people that we look at and we typically call them talented. And that's the biggest joke in the world because those people aren't talented. Now, we all have different ceilings. It's not about that. But the people that tend to achieve world-class results, they literally have just trained themselves to be incredibly comfortable being incredibly uncomfortable in painful situations and when they have to sacrifice a lot. And I think that, you know, I, I don't know what it was, but there was just something inside of me whenever I was starting out that my family, by the time my dad grew up in a trailer park and, and worked his way up and became a very successful eye surgeon. And so I lived on both sides of the tracks. But by the time I chose to skip scholarships to law school and move across the country into a homeless shelter and then move into the closet of a gym, like my family had two condos in Playa del Carmen, Mexico. I don't know if you've been to Playa del Carmen, but the water is crystal clear blue. It's, it's got the number two beach in the world. And I chose to live in a homeless shelter and the closet of a gym instead of next to the number two beach in the world. And so I think that it's, it's about that willingness to sacrifice over and over and over again. And really, I think what it all comes down to is I think that we all have greatness inside of us. I think that we all have incredible potential inside of us. But it's not about a lot of people talk about, you know, how big are your dreams or dream big or my favorite that I hate the most is, you know, set really big, hairy, audacious goals. And, you know, I wrote a book called Burn Your Goals. But I think the real question, Wes, that we have to ask ourselves is how much am I willing to suffer? Yeah. And a lot of people are not willing to suffer enough for the things that they go through on a daily basis. Right. We spend a lot of times in our lives doing things that we hate to make money that we don't necessarily need to continue this lifestyle of doing things that we don't really like. Right. And that's a dangerous cycle that society has really taught us that we need to get into. So for the individuals who are sitting at home who are thinking, Hey man, I don't like my job. I hear you, Josh, but you know, I've got to support my family and I make money in this job. And you know, I, I can't really see the forest for the trees right now, Josh. Yeah. What would you say to that individual? I'd say that we've never lived in a time with more opportunity than today. That the amount of opportunities that are out there, if you can pull your head out of the sand, if you can stop falling for the trick that everybody wants you to believe in, if you turn on the news, all you're going to hear is gloom and doom. And then you're going to, your natural instincts are going to run for safety and security. And so what, what I think, you know, I, I heard something Whenever I was in Costa Rica this summer where this guy, this amazing guy that took us on this incredible waterfall tour and took us head first down waterfalls, their company's called Paddle Nine. I love them. And he said to me, he said, you know, I watched a really interesting documentary about how it said that New York is like a, a self-managed prison and that all these people are actually in prison, but the prisoners run the prison and they keep themselves locked in prison. And man, that, that's never left my head. Because I think that there's just so much opportunity that exists to do the stuff that sets your soul on fire. I, I sign almost every chop wood, carry water book that I send to people. You know, I, I hope that this encourages and inspires you to become relentless in the pursuit of what sets your soul on fire. Because if you do that, then 
what ends up happening is, like C.S. Lewis said, if you'll put first things first, second things aren't suppressed, they'll increase. Doesn't mean they're going to increase right away, but if you'll put those first things first, then the taking care of your family, the taking care of the, the resources, those things eventually will come. But right now, what we've settled for, and that, I mean, just think about that word, like settling. Like, I hate the word settling. Oh, man, and, it makes me cringe, man. Right. I hate the way that word it, is It's like, but most people have settled for the illusion of safety and security. And so they're doing something that they hate. They're giving themselves cancer. They're giving themselves sickness and disease and heartache. And because they're, they've sacrificed the life that they should be living. And so it's really sad to me, but I mean, there's so many examples. If you start looking around, there's so many examples of people that were willing to sacrifice for a really long time and then eventually now they get to have a lot more real safety and security. It's still an illusion. Anytime you get in a car, anytime that you walk outside, your risk of death is actually a lot higher than we like to believe it. So it's still an illusion. No matter how much money you have, it doesn't make you safe. It doesn't make your family safe. I get frustrated because I think that people think that they can give their kids something. Like, well, if I give them that, like, no, you can only give them an opportunity. Like, they have to be able to take it. And if they haven't been equipped for it, then everything that you're giving them is actually probably hurting them. It's not helping them. That's fantastic. Here's another facet that I believe people will become safe in, and that is identity. And for mm -hmm. a lot of people, they form their identity around a relationship or a job or yep. for me, I, I did around being a professional athlete. Yep. What is the danger of forming an identity? We all need an identity. It's significant to the human experience to feel as though you exist within something right but what is the danger that people get themselves inside of when they form identities in the wrong way well i think you alluded to it a little bit a lot of professional athletes a lot of athletes i think have this probably even more so than other people do because it, it's at the forefront of what they do and maybe i just don't have enough experience in in other areas but i i just don't think that people outside of sports so closely identify for the majority of their life with a certain identity as athletes do. And I think it's one of the most dangerous things that we can do. You know, you, you see football players and not referencing soccer, but you know, American football players and, you know, sometimes they will sacrifice so much in their life of really important things. Well, I don't read. I'm a football player. I, I don't go to class. I'm a football player. I don't do this. I'm a football player. And so many things to try and fit this stereotype identity that really end up being incredibly destructive for their life. And then eventually what ends up happening, you know, and, and I talk about, you know, never let your identity be wrapped up in something that can be gone in the blink of an eye. You can have an injury. You could be in a car accident. You could, you could just get, I mean, uh, as a lot of professional athletes have found out, you can just wake up one day and boom, somebody has just taken it away from you. They say you're done. They, they, they cut you and nobody else wants you. And all of a sudden, your whole life comes crashing down and you have this identity crisis because you haven't been a person that plays soccer. You have been a soccer player. You haven't been a, a person who happens to serve people in hospitals. You're a doctor. And so anytime that you allow your identity to be wrapped up in what you do and not in who you are, it's a really, really slippery slope. I mean, I try my best to never let people put me in a box and say, oh, well, you're a motivational speaker. Or, oh, you're a sports psychologist or, oh, you're a this. 
The only label that I accept is I'm a child of God who happens to do a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of different things that I'm passionate about, but I never want my identity to be wrapped up in what I do. And I'm incredibly passionate about what I do. I care about it. I care about my craft. I beat on my craft. I've done a lot to become the best that I'm capable of being at my craft, but my craft is still my craft. It's not who I am. That's incredible. I love the way that you've used your experience and your relationship with your divine to be your guiding factor in choosing that identity and placing and framing that identity around yourself. When it comes to the context of athletes and non-athletes, because everyone that is an athlete is not an athlete in other forms of their life, right? What is the difference between, because I can remember so many players that were, like you said, talented, Mm-hmm. More, far more talented than me when I was playing and I was younger, but I don't even know where those guys are now. I couldn't tell you. I never saw them again. Yeah. What is the difference between the individual like yourself and like Steve Jobs and the individuals who choose to go through the discouragement that they get in their life constantly over and over? What's the difference in their makeup or their mindset that allows them over time to succeed? Well, the two-part answer is, number one, Steve Jobs said that the reason why you have to love what you do and why you have to be passionate about it is because any sane person would quit. Because eventually you're going to hit that painful stuff that I was talking. You're going to have to make sacrifices. You're going to, that's inevitable in fulfilling your potential in in anything. It's so hard to get an idea off the ground as an entrepreneur. It's so hard to get a break as a screenwriter. It's so hard to get a break as, you know, as an athlete sometimes. And so, you know, he talked about the reason why um, you have to love it is because in order to start breaking in at certain levels, you have to show such a ridiculous level of persistence that the level of persistence is so great that you have to love it. Cause if you don't love it, all the sane ones quit. But then I think mm. that when you talk about talent, I honestly think that talent is more of a blessing than a curse. And I say that one of the kids that I've worked with the longest, who's like my little sister is Naira Fields, who, you know, played at UCLA for four years and plays for team Canada for women's basketball. And, and Naira's a freak. She's a freak athlete. She, uh, I say that she has a LeBron James body and it. You know, she's only five, eight, but her body, it's freakish. What she can do. It's just, it's incredible. But I think, you know, and I've told her that and it, it took four years, maybe three years for her really to start to understand it. But that now nah, look, talent is more of a curse than a blessing unless you learn how to A, use your sport or use whatever it is that you're doing to develop the characteristics that are important to you. But more importantly than that, even, I think that unless you learn how to adopt the strategies of the people that are not talented, the people that are the guys and ladies that don't have that talent, but that have had to just be an absolute workhorse, that have had to fight and scratch and claw for every single inch just to get on the team, no less get on the field or the court. And if you don't learn how to adopt those strategies, then eventually you're going to be way worse off in life because that's what you have to do in every area. And so if you don't learn how to do this, 
I just feel so bad for the people that they are talented. They, they've had everything handed to them. It's the same people that have had something, you know, that, like I just alluded to earlier, if you get handed stuff on a silver platter, then you haven't learned how to do it for yourself. And so you're not equipped and you know that. And then that follows you around everywhere in life. So you're not better off. It's like winning the lottery, right? That's what I say about talent. It's like winning the lottery. For the first 10 years, yeah, it looks on paper like you're good, but then you're not. That's why the majority of people that win the lottery end up worse off five, 10 years down the road than they were before winning the lottery because it's actually a curse. It looks like a blessing on the surface, but if you don't know what to do with that, then you're actually going to end up worse off than you were before. And that's why you take somebody that's super talented and if they haven't learned that growth mindset, if they haven't learned how to, to grind and, and grit and persistence and that incredible work ethic, then whenever they finish up with whatever that thing is, that singular thing that they're talented at, well then they're so poorly equipped for the next phase of their life, it's not even funny. And, and every single one of us are going to have, you know, you take somebody even like LeBron James, LeBron James is still going to have at least three phases of his life, right? <laughs> the game is going to come to an end and he's going to have to, to shift into something else. He's had the time as a professional athlete and he had the time as a young child. And so, and I think for most of us that aren't at that level, we're going to have five or six phases of our life. And so if we haven't learned those strategies, then oftentimes I personally believe that talent it's kind of like winning the lottery and it actually ends up being more of a curse than a blessing. So I've got this air quoted word that I love to use and I teach it to my boys that I coach. I teach it to any individual that I'm trying to structure a, a different type of mindset. I call grind juice. Grind you have juice. to be extremely comfortable with filling your life, your t-shirt in life with grind juice and making constant decisions over and over again to continue on and to fight through adversity and through discouragement and any of the things that life can hit you with. Now, here's my question on that. When you're getting this grind juice, right, and, and you're really grinding and working, are you able to attach yourself and connect yourself to the energy supply that is available without a vision? and without a passion. And for those individuals if who may need that energy source and that love and that passion, how do they find what they're passionate about if they have not yet found it? What I try and do with people is I just try and ask them really simple questions. Like, you know, what gets you really excited? What makes you really mad? Like, what do you get really sad about? Just those really basic questions and then go from there. I mean, I had the privilege of working with a school that puts out the second most CEOs to Harvard. And I was actually working with the women's hockey team. And yet every single one of the kids that met with me individually, they wanted to talk about entrepreneurship. So this one girl asked that exact same question. Well, Joshua, you know, I'm 19 and I don't know what, I know I want to start a business. I know I want to be an entrepreneur, but I just don't know what to do. And I asked her, I said, well, what, what makes you really mad? And she said, well, it's kind of silly. And I was like, there's no silly answer. It's like, what makes you really mad? She said, well, it's the fact that as a division one athlete, I can never buy clothes off the rack that fit my body. And I said, do you think you're the only person that suffers from that? She was like, no, it's all of us. That's why all we wear is yoga pants and sweatpants because nothing else fits. And I said, okay. And so I said, what I call this is solving for your ex. 
And I just walked her through the process of, okay, here's how you could use social media to build your tribe. Here's how you could contact somebody at FITM in Los Angeles to help you design a single pair of jeans that are perfectly tailored for your body. And then you can pre-sell to the group that you've curated over here and that you've been building up in your tribe on social media. And so you're not even really coming out of your own pocket more than probably three or $400. And you're starting your own business that's an actual cash flow business by solving for your ex. And it's something that you're passionate about. And so I think sometimes we get caught up in like, we want to solve these really big problems. But it's like, again, going back to Mother Teresa, when she would come and speak, people would be so inspired and they would be like, I want to go across the world and I want to go serve like you do. And she's like, hey, start with one. And guess what? That one in your backyard, that one will do just fine. And so we get obsessed with the big. We get obsessed with all these big, sexy ideas and things instead of just being incredibly faithful with the little stuff. And so I say we need to dream big, but we need to think really small and we need to steward small. We need to be incredibly faithful to small. And if we do that, then that's what ends up, you know, producing these great companies over time. I mean, you look at Phil Knight and I don't know if you read Shoe Dog, but I mean, I was shocked to see that Nike was on the brink of bankruptcy for a decade and he just kept going and kept going and kept going. And so he didn't want to throw it in the towel. He had a family to support, but not only did he have a family to support, they had like a hundred employees, maybe even more. And they were constantly on the brink of bankruptcy. And yet he still went after it and he still went after it. And I just find it so ironic that, you know, you look at the people that are like, I think the most wealthy people in the United States, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Phil Knight, people like that none of them actually tried or were set out on making money. I love it. Gary Vaynerchuk said in one of his speeches, I think Gary V is incredible. <laughs> I think he speaks the truth. I love allowing myself to just listen and interpret what he's saying. And he said yesterday, he said, um, man, when you focus on the little things and doing the little things correct, you'll mess around and, and money will come out of it. You'll yeah. end up falling on the money. I find myself on a daily basis, Josh, starting to get tricked into that spin cycle of thinking about the future and yep. where can creating space go? And I've got to get it. I've got to push behind it and push harder, maybe not smarter. And these are the ideas. And I can feel myself when I'm starting to become consciously affected by that way of thinking or, you know, that, that cyclical thought process for people who are trying to figure out what gets them into these triggers. What's a good way to pull yourself back in and focus on what you have in the present and stop focusing on the past or the future? Well, one little trick that uh, one of my clients that plays for the Arizona Diamondbacks uses is like if he's driving his car and he finds his thoughts, you know, wandering out and he actually just starts to describe what's actually happening to him in the moment. So he'll say, you know, I'm passing a red brick house and, you know, there's a butterfly that just landed on the windshield and that helps him come back to the present moment. But I think that the other two things that are really, really important are constantly, you know, we call it the fuel for your heart, but constantly looking at and getting yourself in front of stories of people like Steve Jobs's <laughs> biography, like Phil Knight's autobiography, 
putting yourself in front of those types of stories is going to help you understand the real grind juice that it <laughs> takes to get to those places. If you're not intentional, you're just going to be surrounded by people that are talking about talent, that are talking about overnight success, that are talking about hitting the lottery, that believe in that lottery principle of success. And so it's really important that you, you know, you fuel for your heart. We call it, you know, what you read, what you watch, what you listen to, who you surround yourself with, how you talk to yourself and what you visualize, that you're making sure that that is really beneficial and constructive with those stories. And just personally to you, I would say, you know, my friend James Clear started, I think about five years ago. So we almost started about the exact same time, but I'll tell you, he just signed a book publishing deal that is for a ridiculous amount of money. And, but the thing about James that's so interesting, my business partner, Jamie, gave a keynote uh, in an event with him and, and he asked him, he said, you know, what do you think has led to your success? And James said, for the first two years, I wrote an article and published an article every single Monday and Thursday. And then, and Jamie stops him. <laughs> James yeah, is like, just two years just stop right it. there. Just two years of consistency. Two years of consistency. And, you know, I think that compared to the average human being, and I mean, you read my, you read some of my credentials to, to start off this podcast. I think that I'm pretty consistent. But then if I'm really honest and I look at people like James, he's so much more consistent than I am. And there's so much more consistent that I could be. And the truth is I use legitimate excuses, right? So like because of some traumas that I went through as a child and, you know, pulling my baby brother out of the pool when he drowned and I kind of developed some form of manic depression. And so my life tends to kind of go like this. And, and so I, I'll use that as an excuse. That's a legitimate excuse to not be consistent. Or, well, I don't get inspired all the time. And sometimes I get inspired and, you know, I wrote Chop Wood, Carry Water in a month and, and I was just really inspired then. And I just make a lot of legitimate excuses and I can look and I can even say, well, you know, I'm doing well, but it's all legitimate excuses to not be incredibly consistent. Mm. And if you look at somebody like that, well, that's what you find and you look at, you look at, I mean, even LeBron, I, I always find it funny, but it wasn't until after LeBron got mopped by the Mavericks that he changed everything. He finally understood that if he wanted to fulfill his potential, he had to radically change his diet. He had to start doing mental training. He had to start, he, I mean, he had to, for the first time in his life, put in serious grind juice every single day or else he wasn't even going to be able to play in the finals without cramping. Like he had to, to put it in. And that's just, if, if we're not consistent, it doesn't matter how much talent you have. If you don't develop that consistency in your life, then you can't be frustrated by the lack of consistent results. Love it. I, lo I love that example. That was a, an aha moment for one of the greatest to ever play the basketball game. He began to learn how to cultivate a growth mindset at that time. Right. And Carol Dweck has a great book called Mindset, where she illuminates the growth mindset and the fixed mindset. I love how in your book, Chop Wood, Carry Water, you talk about how to improve and grow 
your own, cultivate your own growth mindset. Tell me and tell the listeners a little bit about how you can become more of a growth mindset learner in life. So I actually have a great story about this. The way that we define a growth mindset is believing that anything that happens to me today is in my best interest and an opportunity to learn and grow. And, you know, that sounds really good on paper, but sometimes people are like, well, you know, what about when, when life hits? And so I tell them the story about, it's ironic now because I'm literally like looking down and I can see the hotel where this happened four years ago. But four years ago, I had just started with UCLA. I was, I'd been with them for maybe three months and it was New Year's. I came down to San Diego with some of my friends from Vanderbilt for New Year's Eve and end up getting into a couple different altercations that weekend, the last of which were all the venues let out at 3 a.m. And so it's New Year's Day now, early morning hours, and everybody's like this big rush to try and get on the elevators. Well, half of our group gets on the elevators. The other half of us um, are, are still stuck in this big group of people. And, and all of a sudden, I hear somebody say what I believe to be the most derogatory racist phrase that, that you can say. And like, I've spent time, you know, training athletes in the toughest housing project in Watts. Like, I've been around some tough situations. I'd never heard this. And then I kind of scan the, the area. And of all the people, there's only two African-Americans around. They're my two friends. And one is pulling the other one away by the neck. And so I'm like, yo, I really did hear this. And, you know, maybe because I'm a little bit of the adrenaline junkie and always got myself into trouble, instead of following my friends away, I go to where, <laughs> where I heard it come from. And sure enough, I hear it again. F that in. And wow. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And so I don't know exactly what I said, but it was something along the lines of, are you freaking kidding me? It was late at night. I'd maybe had a drink or two, so I could have substituted a word. I don't know. I, I, th um, I, I think you did a good job just <laughs> speaking first. I think I would have jumped off the top ropes and come out of, right. the, out of the air, you know, like a exactly like a WWE yeah. wrestler. I, I'm surprised you had that much of a wherewithal to not, not go crazy. Right. Well, I looked at this guy that had said it, and, you know, he's probably 5'8", five, 5'10", five, my build. You know, I'm, I'm 6'2", 170. So, you know, I'm, I'm not huge, but I'm not, I'm not small either. And, but I'd size this guy up. Well, real quick, he just jabs me in the nose. Not a big deal. You know, I was a division one athlete. I can take a punch, but you know, the tough part about getting hit in the nose is I start to water and can't yeah. see straight. But the thing that I failed to do is I failed to look past that guy and past him. It was like, I got little Johnny Manziel and his offensive line behind him. Some of the largest human beings I'd ever seen in my life. And apparently, you know, one of those guys played Mortal Kombat a lot growing up. I don't know <laughs> if you remember the, at the end of every fight scene where the guy would be like, finish him. That's basically, you know, my eyes are watering. I'm probably, you know, a little bit shaking like that, uh, like the character in Mortal Kombat. And so thankfully it was one of the smaller massive human beings. So he was only about 6'3", 240, right? Real small. Oh. And <laughs> he rears back. He hits me with a haymaker that splits my entire face wide open. Blood's gushing everywhere. 
I'm probably knocked out for at least 30 seconds. I finally come to, and I'm like, what's all this liquid all over my face? I don't think it's grind juice. Um, (laughs) So, um, so eventually I get cleaned up. My buddies are like, we got to take you to the hospital. I'm like, I'm fine. They're like, no, we really like your nose doesn't look fine. Like we need to take you to the hospital. So we go to the hospital and we're sitting in the hospital bed and I look over at my buddies and I said, I'm really glad that this happened. I believe that it was in my best interest and an opportunity to learn and grow. And they were like, dang it. We took you to the wrong hospital. Like we knew that there was something wrong with you, but like this dude full on kicked you off the, off the crazy ledge. Like we got to take you to the loony bin. Like how in the world is this in your best interest? Like your nose is over in Egypt, dog. Like this is not in your best interest. And, but I had just, you know, over the last six months, I had read Carol Dweck's book and I had understood that for so much of my life, I'd had that fixed mindset and that everything I did was focused on proving myself and that it was all about what it looks like. And it wasn't about learning and growing and using every situation as an opportunity to learn and grow. And so I was like, you know what, as embarrassing as this is, as challenging as this is for me, I still can't breathe right out of my nose four years later. But I believe that it was in my best interest and an opportunity for me to learn and grow. And Lots, lots and of gratitude it takes to be able to take the hard punches that life will throw at you, pun intended, and right. be able to shape them in the, and frame them in the right way for motivation. That's kudos to you. That's the thing. That, that's what I always tell people is I'm like, look, I hope that you never get knocked out by somebody that's 6'3", 240 pounds. But we've all lived long enough to know that life punches every single one of us in the face. It might be when you're nine years old and you pull your baby brother out of the pool. It might be whenever you lose your father to to cancer. It might be whenever your girlfriend cheats on you. It might be whenever your business fails. It might be whenever your wife walks out and leaves you with, you know, two kids to raise. Like life punches everyone in the face. We have no control over whether life is going to punch us in the face. You live more than 10 or 15 years and life is going to punch you in the face, probably multiple times. We don't have control over that, but we do have control over, and I love the way you articulate this. We do have control over the way that we frame it. We do have control over the meaning that we attach to that experience. And so I could say, you know what? I'm a fake. I'm a failure. I'm a fraud. I'm a phony. I shouldn't be the director of mental training for UCLA. I shouldn't be teaching leadership. I shouldn't be mentoring people. I'm a fake. I'm a fraud. Or I can say, man, what an incredible opportunity to learn and grow. And the ironic part is that through sharing that story with so many people around the world, it actually, by being authentically vulnerable with them, it actually increased people's willingness to want to listen to me rather than standing up and telling them exactly what to do, but not, they, they needed to see that grit. They needed mm-hmm. to see that messiness in my life and that vulnerability in my life. And it actually increased my capacity to lead. And so it's, it's just been so interesting. But I think that, you know, I always say, how do you stop somebody that can get knocked out by somebody 6'3", 240 pounds and believe that it was in their best interest and an opportunity to learn and grow. Like you can't stop that person. Like if you adopt that growth mindset, that growth mindset will be the most powerful force in your life because we end up being our own worst enemy so much of the time because when something happens to us, 
we go, oh my God, this is so bad and it's so awful. And I, I'm just, and it's us. It's yeah. not, not Become anybody else. Mentality, like, right. Right. So moving forward, as you have continued in your life to reframe the direction and point out where you want to go and you have used visualization techniques to get you there. Where are you headed and how do you feel that right now life is creating space for the new Josh Metcalf that will be coming into the universe for years to come? Currently, the way I try and use visualization is very much in the moment. So if I have a a keynote presentation coming up or if I have a podcast like this coming up, I try and, especially if I'm nervous about it at all, if I have any type of that internal energy that I'm not just feeling really good about it, I try and visualize myself at my very best. You know, it's funny, the first keynote I ever gave was at Pepperdine University and and I talked a lot about my story with using visualization at Duke and going from being the last pick on the team to finishing second in points. Uh, to the best player in the country, being the ACC player of the week, the Duke student athlete of the week. And it was all after, you know, learning visualization. And I never scored a goal with my head and scored two goals with my head after visualizing it. And so I tell all that story. And I had only had one client at the time who was a professional soccer player in Germany. And he posted that video on a blog. And it just gets ripped to shreds by people. And the, it was funny because they're like, oh, I've heard that crap. You know, that stuff doesn't work. And visualization, that's just ridiculous. It's a bunch of, you know, juju BS. And, and so I thought it was funny because one of the comments said, that guy was so smooth, that looked like an infomercial. And it was hysterical <laughs> because the last keynote that I had done that was like a small presentation was – my mom was actually at it. It was at Biola University. And afterwards, I was like, Mom, you know, how'd I do? And she was like, you know, well, honey. Um, <laughs> and, and she told me, she was like, you know, it just, it was a little bit bland. And you, you needed to be a little bit more excited. And it just kind of felt like you were reading it. So for eight months before that keynote at Pepperdine, I'd visualized for five to 10 minutes a day myself up on stage, very similar to Tony Robbins, full of energy, full of confidence, delivering a talk. I didn't even know what it was going to be about at that point, but I saw myself up there every single day. And so ironically, that thing that was meant to be an insult actually was the greatest compliment and endorsement of the very thing that he was saying doesn't work because I had transformed basically, you know, over eight months of visualizing myself as that person on stage. And, you know, today I don't try and that's not who I want to be. I don't want to be Tony Robbins. I've kind of developed my own unique style, but I still want to see myself on stage at my best. And so, yeah, I think that visualization is incredibly important and a useful tool that I wish more people used in beneficial ways. We all visualize. Most of us just do it in negative ways and undermine our training and our hard work and our effort. And, and so it works both ways. It works negatively and it works beneficially. So, but in terms of who I become and you know, where we go with Train to Be Clutch, I don't know. I don't spend very much time anymore focused on that stuff. I'm trying my best to get back to what do I need to be consistent with? Right. What, what can I do every single day to be faithful with the one in my hand? And I've just found that if I will do that, 
it far surpasses any of my plans or thoughts or ideas. And again, I, I go back to a lot of the people that you see on, on stages and that create amazing stuff. I think a lot of times they'll all say, man, I, I never actually even like, this was bigger than my dreams. This was, yeah. I, I never planned this. But then if you look at how faithful they were and how faithful they were to just be consistent and be consistent and be faithful with the small stuff. And so really in my life, that's what I'm trying to do. And then, you know, I said, you know, life can punch you in the face. I did lose my dad whenever I was 22 to terminal cancer. And I, I watched terminal cancer change the way that he approached life, what he cared about. And so, you know, part of my mission is to be able to get diagnosed with terminal cancer and then not change a thing about the way that I live, you know, mm. to where somebody could walk in right now and say, Hey, Joshua, you know, you have three months to live. And I could say, you know, thanks. Can I get back to the creating space? <laughs> podcast <laughs> with Wes? Like, wow. you know, but seriously, that's how I want to live that I don't want to be doing stuff that I don't think is, is important. And is, you know, is me living out my mission. And, and I've just watched as, you know, I know that the listeners can't see it, but, you know, I've gone from living in the, in a homeless shelter to living in the closet of a gym to living with my mom for four years to now, like my home office, I'm looking over the entire downtown San Diego from 350 feet up, all the ocean, all the buildings, sunset views. It's a very different view. It's the same hustle, but it's, it's a very different view today. And I really do believe that that comes from, you know, that, I, like I said, that day that everything changed for me, whenever I stopped trying to be focused on the next thing and just started trying to be incredibly focused with the thing that's in my hand. Cause I think oftentimes if we, you know, if we try and chase two rabbits, we don't catch either of them. And so I just want to be really faithful with what God has given me and entrusted me with and entrust the process that if I'm really faithful with what's in my hand, then opportunities are going to come. Your path and your journey in life is a testament to focusing on the process will take care of the rest. My dad used to tell me that when I was younger, focus on the process, the process takes care of the rest. And I really see you as an inspiration. And, you know, I knew of you just a little bit, but you actually saw a little bit of what we were doing in creating space on Twitter and you went beside yourself to send me chop wood, carry water in the mail. And, you know, I'll have to say that in doing an act of service like that, you have taught me to continue to take steps outside of myself and do things for the betterment of others and living authentically in myself to serve others. And, you know, you just bring it every day, Josh. And I am 100% positive that my listenerships have spent this hour with you in total value. And, you know, I'm pumped that you came onto the show. Where can everyone find you? Because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of individuals that want to know more. So uh, our <laughs> website is... <laughs> Um, t2bc.com. So the letter T number two BC as in train to be clutch.com on Twitter, just at Joshua Medcalf with a D as in dog. And then on Instagram, it's at real Joshua Medcalf. And I mean, to follow up with that point though, I mean, I do want to be clear. I think a lot of people starting out, they're constantly focused on what they can get instead of what they can give. And if we'll just give and we'll surrender the outcome, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen whenever I reached out to you. I didn't know what was going to happen after I sent you a book, 
but I was living out my mission of love people, serve people, provide value. And I think that, you know, the cool part is I have a feeling that, you know, we'll be friends for a long time and who knows what will come out of this uh, friendship, but it's, it's not trying to do something out of manipulation. It's, it's just purely like, look, I'm going to try and add value to other people's lives and, you know, I'm intentional about where I do that. I knew that you had a podcast. I knew that it would be cool if you had me on here at some point, but that's also a testament to your faithfulness and something that you've been doing. And, and so it's just, it's cool what ends up happening. You know, somebody's always watching and we're not always aware when people are watching, but if we'll just be faithful and we just try and continue to add value to other people, you, you never know what type of relationships will come out of it. But I've seen so many cool relationships that have come out of just doing that right there of, hey, how can I add value to this person's life? Hey, how can I add value to this person's life? And, and then authentic relationships are built. It's not about networking. It's not about connecting with people. It's about building authentic relationships based off of adding value to other people's lives. And when you do that, people know. People know when you're trying to manipulate them. Yeah, people people have that innate intuitive feeling when things are either good or bad. Josh, it's all good your way, man. I look forward to a long-lasting friendship, mentorship, because you've got a lot that I can learn from as I begin my my new journey uh, in this direction. And I look forward to being able to tap into your greatness, to be able to influence mine, to hopefully influence others. So thank you for coming on to Creating Space, Josh. You are the man. And I, I look forward to seeing all the crazy cool things you're going to be doing in the future. Thank you so much for having me on, West. It's my blessing. And I'm grateful to have spent the time with you today. Awesome. Awesome. Take care, pal. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs>